0: It's good to be back. It's, my name is Jason. If we haven't met, I'm sure we'll have the occasion to do that soon. Um, last week we had a treat, right, because we all get treats. Last week was fun. Carissa Ray came down from Grand Rapids and shared the word with us. And I think it was a special word that needed to be said from somebody from the outside. And I think, I, I think I'm still reliving some of that. If you didn't catch the podcast, you can either see the live stream on the Austin New Church Facebook page or you can go just to the podcast where you listen to podcasts. It was a special special time. And she reminded me of a couple of things, and traveling always reminds me of these things, And I just want to name a few things. She reminded me how glad I am to be here in this church, in this city, in this time. We're committed to big gospel in an open table. It's as simple as that. A big gospel that sets free in a table where we don't curate the invitations, we serve the guests. That's the kind of church we are. She had her finger on that. Uh, we are A church that gives itself entirely to the concept of a gospel that sets people free, and if it doesn't set people free, then it wasn't the gospel. Pretty simple math there. We're courageous, I feel like, in this house. We name things, we apologize when we need to. We try our best to listen as hard as we can, and we shoot straight. That's kind of who we are. We're a permission-giving community where you don't have to have everything together to be part of what we're up to. In fact, one of the great things about a church like this is that you can roll in sideways. You can come in hot. There's no baseline expectation of what a decent, nice family looks like. You get what I'm talking about. And now, apparently, we're mystics. Thank you, Carissa, who's watching now. We're mystics, which is just another way of saying that resonated with me. I hadn't found that word, but I think it resonates with me. Uh, It's just a way of saying that we're committed more to curiosity and wonder and seeking and constantly upgrading our faith than we are to certainty. We're committed to the mystery, So welcome to Austin New Church. It's true, we're different, and not every town has one of these. So if Facebook Live can bless someone out there in flyover country, then we're going to do the work that needs to be done so that that can happen. I was hanging with some leaders that are from Arkansas just yesterday, and a few from the Carolinas who say, we watch everything you do. Um, And so a little investment of a, a little bit of time, and maybe we can be a blessing to someone who's Somewhere else. Now, last week, uh, I gave Carissa permission to go wherever the wind blew, and so it wasn't in a conversation about Epiphany. Uh, so now I get to reacclimate us to the story of Epiphany. You know my obsession with the church calendar. These words from a couple of weeks ago Epiphany is the season between Advent and Lent where we celebrate the giving and receiving of gifts, it's the arrival of the three kings. I said this, and just as a reminder it's the time of year when we remember the universal nature of Christ. The cosmological logic of love, the all-encompassing reality that even priests of foreign faiths can come and say, this is what makes most sense. That's what we celebrate in Epiphany. So between now and Lent, we will be reminded that what starts small eventually takes over. You may remember the story of the ashes on the leaf pile, right? Maybe you don't. I guess that's not funny twice in a row. Dang it. Ah, you don't remember that story when I really lit Buddha on fire? Never mind. (laughs) But what starts small grows big. Jackie, your house almost went up in flames. I kid you not. I know that would have really sucked for all of us in our neighborhood. But what we're talking about is that what those things that start small, that tiny shoot of new life coming out of an old stump, to use Isaiah's language, will eventually become a tree large enough for all people of all times. It will be big enough to shelter and cover and protect us all. What began in Israel in that tiny little insignificant country in the backwaters of empire will eventually flood the nations with the truth so deep, so universal... That faithful followers in all times and all places, in all cultures and traditions and faith systems will be able to look at the birth of love in the person of Christ and say that makes the most sense. That's what we celebrate in Epiphany. We get to consider the humanity of God. Now that's an intentional sentence. It's designed to upend a lot of what we were taught growing up. We get to consider the humanity of God, and if we can hold space for it, oh, if our heart can bear it, we even get to consider the the divinity of humanity. How else do you make sense of God become flesh in Jesus Christ? It's basic theology. So we're going to spend the next few weeks looking at the teachings of Jesus primarily through the memory of Matthew. Discipleship will be that conversation, and Sam and I are going to set a little foundation as we move forward. Now, I want to offer this caveat It's not a comprehensive conversation about discipleship. We're seeing things rise in the text that are worth mentioning. So this isn't everything that could be said, but I think what we're going to say today is important as we move forward. But before we move to the lectionary passages in Matthew for Epiphany, there's this little piece in John that sets the table in the book of John. Here's my question for us today. What is a disciple? How do disciples act? Also, what do disciples see? What do they see in themselves? What do they see in others? What do disciples see in the world? Or can they? Or what can they? And what can't they actually do? These are questions that intrigue me. If you're anxious like me, you might just boil it down to this question, which is really what I want to know. What are disciples responsible for? Have you ever carried too much? Have you ever borne up under the weight of a thing too heavy? I wonder... I wonder, what are disciples actually responsible for? Now, we're going to look at these questions over the next couple weeks as these themes kind of rise through the texts. Now, you might know about me that I believe that the proto-disciple par excellence was Mary. All yeses begin with her yes. But Mary, a young woman that did not come from privilege, could hardly have been the herald of the coming of the Messiah. They would not have listened to the voice of a young lady. So it had to be John the Baptist. John the Baptist was the voice that opens the conversation that makes way for Jesus' message. And so our reading from the lectionary text today. Book of John chapter 1. Let me just read it. There's a few verses here. So hang with me. And this is the testimony of John. When Jews sent the priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? We're talking about John the Baptist. He confessed. He did not deny. He confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you a prophet? Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. In Greek, that means nope. Verse 22. Then they said to him, well, then who are you? Let us have an answer for those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said this, verse 23. I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah has said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? And John answered them this way, I baptize with water, but among you stands one whom you do not know, even he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. This took place in Bethany beyond the Jordan where John was baptizing. Verse 29, the next day he saw Jesus coming towards him, again John the Baptist, and he said, behold, the Lamb of God, Who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me, for he was before me. I myself did not know him. What a confession. But for this I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the spirit descend as a dove from heaven, and it remained on him. And you might see the shadows of the baptism of Christ, which John only gives us in literary detail. He doesn't tell the whole story came from heaven. It remained on him. Verse 33, I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. The next day, John, the next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked and he said, behold the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him say this and they transferred allegiance. They Followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following, and he said to them, Why or what do you seek? And then they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, Come and see. And they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. Now you're starting to begin to see what we know comes next in the text, the story of the disciples. Simon, Peter's brother, he first found his brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means the Christ. He brought him to Jesus, and Jesus looked at him and said, so you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. So this is the apostle John, the beloved, telling the story of of John the Baptist. And so you got to do a little work here to keep your Johns straight. But for whatever reason, John brings through that Isaiah reference again. And oh, how I love this language. I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. This is an ancient word formulation designed to quicken the imagination of the audience. And this was what he offered to explain his identity. I am not the answer. But I know where the answer comes from. I am not the sun, I am the moon, I reflect the sun. This is what John offers when pressed by the crowd who demands to know with what authority he baptizes in the Jordan River. And you know the difference, right, between the source and the reflection of the source? A clarifying conversation is in order. What does it mean to be a disciple? What are we actually saying? This imagery of a literal paving with palm fronds and perhaps the outer cloaks that they wore over the rough and craggy places associated with the desert, this is what John picks up on. John says the Messiah is going to come from a rocky, hard, and difficult place, and there's going to be someone who needs to make a straight way for the real deal, for the main act, as it were. John knew what others did not know, and that the answer was this that the liberation, the breakthrough, the new life, this one who would come and set all captives free would come from the broken. come from the craggy places, would come from the desolate places. There was no need, you see, for a highway to pave the way from the palace to the masses. This is how leaders lead people, right? That was the expected route. There would be no need for that way to be made smooth, but Jesus would run this pattern backwards, would he not, from the wilderness to the sacred waters of the baptism in the Jordan, where God would declare his acceptance over Jesus as his chosen one. By the way, This baptismal declaration, this child, this is my child in whom I am well pleased, was God's perhaps most profound declaration over his son, but by extension, hang on here, over us all. Or you may not think so. You might look at your life and say, no, no, God's approval of his son is different than God's approval of me. I wonder if we've misplaced these words from Paul about being hidden with Christ in God. All of God's declarations over Christ extend to us, I wonder Did you know that? Every last one. Now I know it's not easy to believe, but just know this, that when God sees you, God sees himself. The baptism scene may be the only passage in the New Testament that we have where all three embodiments of the divine function in simultaneous time, the Father, the Son being baptized and the Spirit who was making this announcement. And do you know what the subject matter was? When all three members of the Trinity are in one frame at one time, what was the subject matter? It was God's pleasure. It was God's available presence. It was God's joy. It was God's approval. It was the humanity of God. Let that settle in. Now, with this scene of baptism and these words of John, we could go a million directions, but here's what I'm thinking about today. Here's what we're seeing rise from the lectionary as we move forward into Epiphany. What is our role as a people who bear witness to Jesus. What is the job of those people who point to this universal gift of love made present in the man, Jesus Christ? Well, as Sam and I were preparing this message this week, two things rose. I'll talk about one, and she'll discuss the other. I think discipleship begins with understanding our role. It begins with understanding that we are to be the moon, not the sun. We are the ones who point to the main event. We are not the main event, Disciples point to Jesus. They're not Jesus. We don't bear witness to ourselves. The good news for our city isn't the the arrival of our message. The good news for the people we live among is that we bear witness and we point to one who can transform all of it. We don't bear witness to ourselves. We bear witness to Christ. When pressed, John was consistent. I am not the one, he said over and over again. He knew where to look. He knew knew where to expect it to rise. It was the wilderness and it flew under the radar. But when everyone needed a sign, what are you doing? How do you do this? He was very clear. I am not the one. He was referent. He was not object. Even when Jesus calls him the greatest of all prophets, in that final conversation he has, when he doubts the very nature of Jesus, Jesus says he is the greatest of all prophets. Even still, John the Baptist knew to be a disciple, to be a follower, was to first understand, I am not the same. I reflect. He is the main event. You might say, well, why does this matter, preacher? What's your point? I wonder if you've ever felt the fatigue of bearing up under a role that didn't belong to you. I wonder if you've ever borne up under the role of the parent who has to save the child or the family member who has to transform the family or the one who has to be the difference maker. I wonder if I'm the only one in the room who needs to be reminded from time to time that my job is to bear witness not to transform. You see, we aren't transformers, we are the transformed. And to me this is gospel. The job of the disciple is to be transformed by the love we bear witness to. We get to verbalize our doubts. We get to wonder and walk and deconstruct and ask again and again, but we are not the same as the one to whom we bear witness. So discipleship for me begins with knowing who we are. Second point, and I think it carries the whole of the gospel Is this, a disciple, is someone who sees people the way God sees them. Come on, Sam.
1: Well, John the Baptist makes it look easy. I want to point to Jesus with all of John's confidence and exuberance. But I don't always know where my finger is pointing. I don't always see him. I hear we're all made in his image, but I don't feel like people are always putting that divine foot forward, if you know what I mean. If I'm honest, at first glance, I notice where God seems to be missing. Seeing is scary. That's why phones are so great, right? It's easier to keep my head down than bear witness to the hurt Jason just said we can't fix. If our work isn't to transform what we see, I wonder, can we transform how we see Can we learn to spot the spirit in one another and see one another the way he sees us? And what will that cost us? Can we transform how we see? Definitely, you've done this, you do this. Kids do it instinctively. So take heart, we all used to be savants of sight. We could see the castle in a table under a blanket or the hero in the crossing guard. Artists too, all art is pointing, really. That's why it comes in frames. There's so much to see, but look, the artist beckons. Look at the moon in this spot, on this night, from this angle. Something shifts when we learn that that girl we can't stand hasn't gone to the same school for more than a year. More of her comes into view. My little sister's falling in love, and rain looks romantic, bad takeouts, exquisite, an hour becomes a minute, and everything is something to giggle at. Nothing looks the same when you're falling in love. Dallas Willard says, the love of God secures the vision of God. Did John see Jesus in part because he was hoping to? After all, there were others nearby with their noses in the fish or their phones, oblivious. There's a name for that thing when you learn something and then you suddenly start seeing it everywhere. It's called the Bader Meinhof phenomenon. And for me this week, it was the term "visco girl. I don't know if you know what that is. If you don't know what that is, I wish I was still you. But now that I'm in the loop, I see the term everywhere. And not because it suddenly appeared in more places, of course, but because I was looking for it. And so I started to see what was already there. Did John see Jesus in part because he was expecting to? It is easier to find something you are looking for. We're told the image of God is in everyone, but do you expect it? Do you look for it? Unfortunately, this kind of seeing into, seeing through, seeing with our heart, our spirit, our soul, this seventh sense of empathy, the sixth sense being talking to ghosts, obviously, this kind of sight will slam into two great walls of resistance in us. One, it's incredibly inefficient. The eye is the fastest muscle in our body. Our brain depends upon quickly perceiving patterns in order to understand the world. Scientists tell us there's even a neural architecture to our prejudice. Surface level perceptions allow some of us to move through the world quite quickly, despite whatever casualties may pile up in the wake of our hurry. He's probably dangerous. She probably brought this on herself. Keep moving. Two-dimensional people can't stand in your way. But God doesn't live in the surface of things. A new way of seeing will slow us down. The second reason we may struggle to see is that we'd rather be seen. I hope I'd have been as humble as John the Baptist when they asked me who I was, but I probably would have said, look at me. Look what I can do. Or, more insidiously, how's my hair? Do I sound sad? Am I convincing you I'm worth listening to? Do you like me? Barbara Brown Taylor writes, The hardest spiritual work in the world is to love the neighbor as the self. To encounter another human being not as someone you can use, change, fix, help, save, enroll, convince, or control, but simply as someone who can spring you from the prison of yourself, if you will allow it. If there's a way out of this prison, I want it, don't you? I want to see Jesus as clearly as John did and see others with the eyes of Jesus, and the very end of today's reading suggests something about what that kind of work might entail. John tells Andrew to look at Jesus, and Andrew tells his brother Simon to look at Jesus, and so Simon Peter makes an entrance at the very end of the passage. What a tease. If we were to follow this fisherman a little bit further through the Gospels, what do we see? I see Simon Peter as the kind of guy people talked about in terms of temperature. He's at his boiling point or let him cool down. He might be hot stuff or he might flame out. Just depends on the day. I imagine Simon this way. Always a little bit on fire. Case in point, he tries to walk on water and the water swallows him. That's what happens next. Jesus says his faith is small. Follow the story a little bit further. He cuts off someone's ear. I see a man who promises to be faithful and then, same day, pretends not to know the rabbi who washed his feet. And then he denies it again. I see him do it a third time. At this point in the story, I see a violent, erratic liar. But Jesus? Chapter 1, verse 42. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which is translated to Peter bottom of the page tells me Cephas and Peter both mean rock. Jesus sees a rock. Matthew records it this way. I tell you that you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church. Now, to be sure. Peter will go on to become a leader of the early church in Jerusalem. He will build an incredible ministry, write two books of the Bible, and bravely face persecution. He will become a firm, reliable rock of our faith. Sure, but he's not a rock yet. We're in chapter 1. He has so many unrock like things to do still. And God sees these and sees him. And still, at the very beginning of his story, God gives him his new name. What does this suggest about how Jesus sees us? He sees us as belonging to him, enough to tell us who we are. He sees us in our unfolding, and yet he sees us as whole. And this is our invitation, to see one another through this baffling and boundless lens of love. We don't have to come up with new names for people. We probably shouldn't but we do get to behold one another by the names God has already bestowed upon us. And at our best, we repeat those names back to each other when we have forgotten what they sound like. Free, redeemed, beloved, forgiven. Already, even at the beginning of the story, even in the middle of the story, But like so many things, that's a beautiful idea in the air and a heavy one on the ground floor of our lives. It costs us. This fall, my husband and I learned that a dear friend of ours did something terrible. Many in our social circle back in Chicago have deemed it unforgivable. This friend has been categorically expelled from our community, and when people do still mention him, it is quietly and with disgust. He is being erased. Because it's hard to look at him. It's really hard to get old names for him out of my head and my mouth. It's hard not to see this as the end of his story. I cannot muscle myself into this way of seeing on my own. I've tried. We aren't there yet. I cannot unsee the damage he caused. And I don't want to reframe it or spin it or find the silver lining. And I don't think God's asking that. Bear witness to it all, the spirit beckons. But don't stop looking for me, even here, even in this, even in him, your fallen friend. Stay with it. Love me enough to look for me, God whispers. Expect to find me in the wreckage. And make some noise if you do.
0: As we talked this week, Sam and I, about this concept of discipleship, and where do we begin? I feel like this whole idea of being taught to re-see carries the whole gospel, doesn't it? You might say, well, what does discipleship mean? Isn't that people lined up in little classrooms with terrible coffee and styrofoam cups that study the book of Romans, and, you know, you have to track them over time, and isn't isn't discipleship this thing about, you know, this heavy learning thing, and I wonder if in the end what the gospel is introducing us is to a new way of seeing the world. Now, I hadn't, I hadn't fully considered what it might looked like to look at someone I love who has crossed a line and say, and even there, Richard Rohr would say, if you can't see Christ in all, you can't see Christ at all. So this invitation of the gospel to us today to not overfunction and carry the weight of those who must transform the world but to point to Jesus and to understand that what that means over time is to be reintroduced to a new way of seeing reminded of the exchange between Jesus and the man that was blind and he anointed his eyes and he rubbed the mud in and he asked him what do you see and he said I see trees and Jesus did it again and he did it again and he did it again and so when he opened his eyes what did he see do you remember what he saw He said, I see people, only people. So what's rising in you right now? What name is rising in you right now? What sense is rising in you? I would ask you to pay attention to that. Who have you been trying to fix? Who have you been trying to carry or transform? Name them gently, name that gently, and let that slip away, release that.
1: Who have you struggled to see with the eyes of Jesus? Name that in your heart. And if guilt rises, name that too and release it.
0: I wonder if you would indulge us. Jump to your feet if you're able. Sometimes preachers like to ask you to repeat after them just for dramatic effect. (laughs) It's fun to get people to repeat things. But in all seriousness, repeat this after me and let these words sink into your heart oh some of you need to be set free even now from these things repeat after me we aren't the fixers
1: we aren't the fixers
0: we are the fixed
1: we are the fixed
0: we aren't the healers
1: we aren't the healers
0: we are the healed
1: we are the healed
0: we aren't the sun
1: we aren't the sun we are the moon we are the moon and repeat after me we can see how god sees
0: we can see how god sees
1: we can see past the surface
0: we can see past the surface
1: we can look through a lens of love
0: we can look through a lens of love
1: bow your heads and let's pray together lord thank you that you are the savior and not us help us to see ourselves in right relation to you May we fall deeper and deeper in love with you so that we want to find you, so that we expect to find you. Teach us to see one another as you do. And thank you for seeing us with grace and outrageous love. In your name we pray, amen.